Ja, ja, nu går jag. Jag såg oss. Jag älskar. För jag är stryklig. Och jag är strådd. Jag säger. Jag vill jag. Jag såg oss. Nu går jag. Welcome to the 348th of the Cthulhu Podcasts. I'm Felbrig. Today we'll continue with the newly started book South with Scott by Edward Evans, who was part of Scott's fabled Fatal's Journey South, and then we'll carry on with the mystery of three John Silent stories. Let's head to that white continent. Chapter 2. Voyage of the Terra Nova Sailing day came at last, and on June the 1st, 1910, when I proudly showed Scott his ship, he very kindly ordered the hands aft and thanked them for what they had done. The yards were square, the hatches on with spick-and-span white hatch covers, a broad white ribbon brightened the black side, and gold leaf bedizened the quarter badges besides gilding on the rope scroll on the stern. The ship had been well painted up, a neat harbour furl put on the sails, and if the steamers and lofty sailing vessels in the basin could have spoken, their message would surely have been, Well done, little un. What a change from the smudgy little lamp-black craft of last November. So much for paint and polish. All the same, it was the Terra Nova's Indian summer. A close search by the technical expert would have revealed scars of age in the little lady. Furrows worn in her sides by grinding ice flows, patches in the sails, strengthening pieces in the cross-trees, and sad-looking dead eyes and lanyards, which plainly told of a bygone age. But the merchant seamen who watched from the dockside were kind, and said nothing. The old admirals who had come down to visit the ship were used to these things, or perhaps they did not twig it. After all, what did it matter? It was sailing day. We were all as proud as peacocks of our little ship, and from that day forward we pulled together and played the game, or tried to. Lady Bridgman, wife of the first sea lord, and Lady Markham hoisted the white ensign and the burgee of the Royal Yacht Squadron an hour or so before sailing. At 4.45pm the visitors were warned off the ship, and a quarter of an hour later we slipped from our wharf in the southwest India docks and proceeded into the river and thence to the Greenhithe, where we anchored off my old training ship, the Worcestershire, and gave cadets a chance to look over the ship. On the 3rd of June we arrived at Spithead, where we were boarded by Captain Chudwind, superintendent of compasses at the Admiralty, who swung the ship and adjusted our compasses. Captain Scott joined us up on the 4th and paid a visit with his yacht to the RYS at Cowes. On the 6th we completed a series of magnetic observations in the Solent, after which many officers were entertained by Captain Mark Kerr in the ill-fated Invincible. We were royally looked after, but I am ashamed to say we cleared most of his canvas and boatswain's stores out of the ship. Perhaps a new three-and-a-half-inch hawser found its way to the Terra Nova. Anyway, if the invincible stores came on board the exploring vessel, she made good use of them, and saved them from their Jutland fate. We left the Solent in high feather on the following day. The seahorse took us in tow to the Needles, from whence HMS Cumberland, cadet's training ship, towed us on to Weymouth Bay. This was poor Scott's last naval review. He had landed at Portsmouth and busied himself with the expedition's affairs and rejoined us at Weymouth in time to steam through the home fleet assembled in Portland Harbour. We steamed out of the hole in the wall at the western end of Portland Breakwater and rounded Portland Bill at sunset on our way to Cardiff, 
where we were to be received by my own Welsh friends and endowed with all the good things. We were welcomed by the citizens of the great Welsh seaport with enthusiasm. Free docking, free coal. Defects made good for nothing. An office and staff placed at our disposal. In fact, everything was done with an open-hearted generosity. We took another 300 tonnes of patent fuel on board and nearly 100 tonnes of Insol's best Welsh steaming coal, together with the bulk of our lubricating oils. When complete with fuel, we met with our first setback, for the little ship settled deeply in the water and the seams, which had up to now been well above the waterline, leaked in a way that augured a gloomy future for the crew in the nature of pumping. With steam up, this did not mean anything much, but under sail alone, unless we could locate the leaky seams, it meant half an hour to an hour's pumping every watch. We found a very leaky spot in the forepeak, which was mostly made good by cementing. On the 15th of June, we left the United Kingdom after a rattling good time in Cardiff. Many shore boats and small craft accompanied us down the Bristol Channel as far as the Break Sea light vessel. We hoisted the Cardiff flag at the fore and the Welsh flag at the mizzen. Some wag pointed to the flag and asked why we had not a leak under it, and I felt bound to reply that we had a leak in the forepeak. It was a wonderful send-off, and we cheered ourselves hoarse. Captain Scott left with our most intimate friends in the pilot boat and we proceeded a little sadly on our way. After passing Lundy Island, we experienced a headwind and the gentle summer swell of the Atlantic. In spite of her deeply laden condition, the Terra Nova breasted each wave in splendid form, lifting her toy bowsprit proudly in the air, until she reminded me, with her deck cargo, of a little mother with her child upon her back. Our first port of call was Madeira, where it was proposed to bunker and we made good passage to the island under steam and sail for the most part. We stayed a couple of days coaling and taking magnetic observations at Fuchal, then ran out to the northeast trades, let fires out and became a sailing ship. Whilst lazily gazing at fertile Madeira from our anchorage, we little dreamt that within two months the distinguished Norseman, Roald Amundsen, would be unfolding his plans to his companions on board the Fram, in this very anchorage, plans which changed the whole published object of his expedition, plans which culminated in the triumph of the Norwegian flag over our own little Union Jack, and plans which caused our people a fearful disappointment, for Amundsen's ultimate success meant our failure to achieve the main object of our expedition, to plant the British flag first upon the South Pole. Under sail. Quite a number of the scientists and crew had never been to sea in a sailing ship before, but a fair wind and a collection of keen and smiling young men moving about the decks were particularly refreshing to me after the year of fund collecting and preparation. We learnt to know a great deal about one another on the outward voyage to New Zealand, where we were to embark our dogs and ponies. The most surprising personality was Bowers, considering all things. Officers, scientists and the watch worked side by side trimming coals and restoring the tween decks as cases were shaken and equipment assembled. The scientific staff were soon efficient at handling, reefing and steering. Everyone lent a hand at whatever work was going. Victor Campbell was christened the Wicked Mate and he shepherded and fathered the afterguard delightfully. Wilson and I shared the captain's cabin and when there was nothing afoot he made lovely sea sketches and watercolour drawings to keep his hand in. Certainly Uncle Bill, or Dr Wilson's nickname, 
had copy enough in those days of sunlit seas and glorious sunrises. He was up always an hour before the sun, and missed very little that was worth recording with his artistic touch. Wilson took Cherry Girard under his wing, and brought him up as if he were in the shadow of his own unselfish character. We had no adventures to record until the last week in July, before the catching of the flying fish, singing shanties at the pump, and Lily getting measles. We isolated him in the dark room, which, despite its name, was one of the lightest and freshest rooms in the ship. Atkinson took charge of the patient, and Lily could not have been in the hands of a better or more cheerio medico. Not all of the members of the expedition had embarked in England, although the majority came out in the ship to save expense. Captain Scott had remained behind to squeeze out a few more subscriptions and to complete arrangements with the Central News, which he was making in order to give the world's newspapers the story of the expedition for simultaneous publication as reports came back to civilization in the Terra Nova. He also had finally to settle magazine and cinematograph contracts, which were to help pay for the expedition. And lastly, our leader, with Drake and Wyatt, the business manager, were to pay bills we had incurred by countless items of equipment, large and small, which went to fill up our lengthy stores list. Thankless work enough. We in the ship were much better off, with no cares now beyond the handling of our toy ship and her safe conduct to Lightenton. Cecil Mears and Lieutenant Bruce were on their way through Siberia collecting dogs and ponies. Ponting was purchasing the photographic and cinematographic outfit. Griffith Taylor, Debenham and Priestley, our three geologists, and Day, the motor engineer, were to join us in New Zealand, and Captain Scott with Drake at Cape Town. In order to get another series of magnetic observations, and to give the staff relief from the monotony of the voyage as well as an opportunity for doing a little special work, we stopped at the uninhabited island of South Trinidad for a couple of days, arriving on July 26th. Trinidad Island looked magnificent with its towering peaks as we approached it by moonlight. We dropped anchor shortly after dawn. The ship was handed over to the wicked mate and the boatswain, who set up the rigging and delighted themselves with a seamanlike refit. Campbell had a party over the side scrubbing the weeds off, and many of the ship's company attempted to harpoon the small sharks which came close round the shoals and provided considerable amusement. These fish were too small to be dangerous. But after breakfast, all the scientists and most of the officers landed and were organised by Uncle Bill into small parties to collect birds' eggs, flowers, specimens, to photograph and to sketch. A good lunch was taken ashore, and we looked like a gunroom picnic party, more than a scientific expedition when we left the ship in flannels and all manner of weird costumes. Wilson, Pennell and Cherry Girard shot a number of birds, mostly terns and garnets, and climbed practically to the top of the island, where they could see the Martin Vaz islets on the horizon. Wilson secured some Trinidad petrels, both white-breasted and black-breasted, and discovered that the former is the young bird and the latter the adult of the same species. He found them in the same nests. We collected many terns' eggs. The tern has no nest, but lays its eggs on a smooth rock. Also, one or two frigate birds were caught, Nelson worked along the beach finding sea urchins, anemones and worms, which he taught the sailors the names of, polycheats and sepunculcits, I think he called them. He caught various fishes, including sea perches, garfish, coralfish and an eel, a small octopus and a quantity of sponges. 
triggerfish were so abundant that many of them were speared from the ship with the greatest of ease, and Rennick harpooned a couple from a boat with an ordinary dinner fork. Lily, who had recovered from measles, was all about, and his party went for flowering plants and lichens. He climbed to the summit of the island, 2,000 feet, and gave it as his opinion that the dead trees strewn all around the base of the island had been carried down with the volcanic debris from higher altitudes. It was also his suggestion that the island had only recently risen, the trees which originally grew on the top of the island having died from unsuitable climate in the higher condition. Gran went up with Lily and took photographs. Birdie Bowers and Wright were employed collecting insects, and with those added by the rest of us, the day's collection included all kinds of ants, cockroaches, grasshoppers, mayflies, a centipede, 15 different species of spider, locusts, a cricket, woodlice, a parasite fly, a beetle, and a moth. We failed to get any of the dragonflies that we saw, and to the great sorrow of the crews who landed with us, missed capturing a most beautiful chestnut-coloured mouse with a fur tail. Land crabs, a dirty yellow in colour, were found everywhere. The farther one went inland, the bigger the crabs were. The blue shore crabs were only to be seen near the sea or along the coast and watercourses. Several of these were brought off to the ship for Dr. Atkinson to play with, and he found nematodes in them, and parasites in the birds and fish. During the afternoon, a swell began to roll in the bay, and those on board the ship hoisted the warning signal and fired a sound rocket to recall the scattered parties. By 4.30, we'd reassembled on the rocks where we had landed in the forenoon, but the rollers being 15 feet high, it was obviously unwise to send off cameras and perishable gear, and since it was equally inadvisable to leave the whole party ashore without food and sufficient clothing, and the prospect of an inhospitable island home for days, we all swam off one by one. The boat's crew working a grass line bent to a life buoy. The boat to which we swam was riding to a big anchor a hundred feet from the shore, just outside the surf. There were a few sharks round the whaler, but they were shy and left us alone. Rennick worked round the boat in a small Norwegian pram and scared them away. Many triggerfish swallowed the thick vegetable oil which the boat's crew ladled into the sea to keep the surf down and I think this probably attracted the sharks, though it was not very nice to swim through. None of us were any the worse for our romp ashore, but the long day and the hot sun tired us all out. Nearly all the afterguard slept on the upper deck that night, and, but for the dismal roar of the swell breaking on the rocks and the heavy rolling of the Terra Nova, we spent quite a comfortable night. Dr Atkinson and Brewster had been left ashore with the gear, but they got no sleep, because all night the terns flew round crying and protesting against their intrusion. The wail of these birds strangely sounds like the deep note of a banjo. The two men mostly feared the land crabs, but to their surprise they were left in peace. Next day, about 9am, I went in with Rennick, Bowers, Oates, Gran and two seamen to the landing place, taking a whaler and pram equipped with grass hawser, breeches boy, rocket line and everything necessary to bring off the gear. We had a rough time getting the stuff away undamaged by the sea, but the pram was a wonderful seaboat, and we took it in turns to work her through the surf until everything was away. At the last, when nearly everything had been solved and got to the whaler, the collections in tin boxes, wooden cases and baskets, and the two men Atkinson and Brewster were on board, 
A large wave threw the pram right up onto the rocks, capsizing her and damaging her badly. Her two occupants jumped out just before a second wave swept the boat over and over. Then a third huge roller came up and washed the pram out to sea, where she was recovered by means of a grapnel thrown from the whaler. The two on the rocks had to face the surf again, but were good swimmers, and with their recovery our little adventure ended. It was a pity, with bad weather, because I intended to give the crew a run on the island when Campbell had finished with them. We remained another day under the lee of Trinidad Island, owing to a hard blow from the south-east, a dead headwind for us, because I felt it would be useless to put to sea and to punch into it. We were anchored one mile south, four degrees east magnetic, from the nine-pin rock, well sheltered from the prevailing wind. We left Trinidad at noon on the 28th, well prepared for the bad weather expected on approaching the Cape of Good Hope. Whilst clearing the land, we had an excellent view of the southwest bay, and saw a fine lot of rollers breaking on the beach. I was glad we'd kept there that day, as in my opinion our anchorage was really the only fair one off the island. By noon on the 29th we had left South Trinidad out of sight. The wind had freshened again and we could almost lay our course under sail for the Cape. This next stage of the voyage was merely a story of hard winds and heavy rolls. The ship leaked less as she used up the coal and patent fuel. All the same, we spent many hours at the pump. But since much of the pumping was done by the afterguard, as were called the officers and scientists, we developed and hardened our muscles finely. In the daytime, the afterguard were never idle. There is always plenty to do in a sailing ship, and when not attending to their special duties, the scientists were kept working at everything that helped the show along. Whilst on deck, they were strictly disciplined and subordinated and respectful to the ship's executive officers, while in the wardroom they fought those same officers in a friendly way for every harsh word and every job they had imposed upon them. Campbell was a fine seaman. He was respected and admired by such people as Oates and Atkinson, who willingly pocketed their pride and allowed themselves to be hustled round equally with the youngest seaman on board. The wicked mate generally had all the afterguard under the hose before breakfast, as washing water was scarce and the allowance meagre on such a protracted voyage. In the hotter weather, we nearly all slept on deck the space on top of the ice house and in the boats being favourite billet. There was no privacy in the ship, and only the officers of watches and lookout men were ever left with their thoughts. One or two of the younger members confessed to being homesick, for the voyage was long and it was not at all certain that we would all win back to England home and beauty. Those who were not sailor men soon acquired the habit of the sea, growing accustomed to meeting fair and foul weather with an equally good face rejoicing with us sailormen at a fair wind and full sail, and standing by the top-gallant and top-sail halyards when the prospects were more leaden-coloured and the barometer falling. We numbered about forty now, which meant heaps of beef to haul on ropes, and plenty of trimmers to shift the coal from the hold to the bunkers. One or two were always stoking side by side with the firemen, and in this fashion officers, seamen and scientific staff cemented a greater friendship and respect for one another. On August the 7th, after drinking to absent friends, Oates, Atkinson and Gran, the three midshipmen, were confirmed in their rank and a ship's biscuit broken on the head of each in accordance with the gunroom practice. And after this day, during good and bad weather, these three kept regular watch with the seamen, 
going aloft, steering, and taking all the usual duties in their turn. From the start, Pennell, who was to relieve me in command of the ship on her arrival at the Antarctic base, showed an astounding knowledge of birds, and Wilson took the keenest interest in teaching him about bird life in the great southern ocean, and giving him a preliminary idea of the bird types to be met with in Antarctica. Reflecting back to these days, one sees how well we all knitted into the places we were to fill, because a long sea voyage searches out hidden qualities and defects, not that there were many of the latter. Still, one man developed lung trouble, and another had a strained heart. One of these, to our great regret, was forced to leave the expedition before the ship went south, while the other had to be ruled out of the shore party, an awful disappointment to both of them. We reached Simonstown on August the 15th, and here the naval authorities gave us every assistance, lent us working parties and made good our long defect list. We were disappointed on arriving to find that Captain Scott was away in Pretoria, but he succeeded in obtaining a grant of £500 from the South African government, and raised another £500 by private subscription. When Captain Scott came amongst us again, he wrote of the Terra Nova party that we were all very pleased with the ship, and very pleased with ourselves, describing our state of happiness and overflowing enthusiasm exactly. Those who could be spared were given leave here. Some of us went up country for a few days, and had a chance to enjoy South African scenery. Oates, Atkinson and Bowers, went to Wimberg and temporarily forgot the sea. Oates's one idea was a horse, and he spent his holiday as much on horseback as he possibly could. In a letter, he expressed great admiration for the plucky manner in which Atkinson rode to hounds one day at Wimberg. The two were great friends, but it would be hard to imagine two more naturally silent men, and one wonders how evident pleasure can be obtained with a speechless companion. Scott now changed with Wilson, who went by mail steamer to Australia in order to organise and finally engage the Australian members of our staff. Our leader was, without doubt, delighted to make the longer voyage with us in the Terra Nova, and to get away from the hum of commerce and the small talk of the many people who were pleased to meet him, until the hat was handed round. That awful fund collecting. And now it's time to... Listen to some silence. It may seem rather abrupt to you, this sudden tame ending, said Arthur Fezzin, glancing with flushed face and timid eyes at Dr. Silence, sitting there with his notebook. But the fact is, uh, that from the moment my memory seems to have failed, rather. I have no distinct recollection of how I got home or what precisely I did. It appears I never went back to the inn at all, I only dimly recollect racing down the long white road in the moonlight, past woods and villages. They were still and deserted. And then the dawn came up and I saw the towers of a biggish town, and so I came to a station. But long before that I remember pausing somewhere on the road and looking back to where the hill town of my adventure stood in the moonlight, there thinking how exactly like a great monstrous cat it lay there upon the plain. Its huge front paws lying down the two main streets, and the twin and broken towers of the cathedral marking its torn ears against the sky. The picture stays in my mind with the utmost vividness to this day. Another thing remains in my mind from that escape, namely the sudden sharp reminder that I had not paid my bill. 
and the decision I made, standing there on that dusty high road, that the small baggage I had left behind would more than settle for my indebtedness. For the rest, I can only tell you that I got coffee and bread at a cafe on the outskirts of this town I'd come to, and soon after found my way to the station and caught a train later in the day. That same evening, I reached London. And how long altogether, asked John Silence quietly, do you think you stayed in that town of the adventure? Vezin looked up sheepishly. I was coming to that, he resumed, with apologetic wrigglings in his body. In London I found I was a whole week out in my reckoning of time. I had stayed over a week in the town, and it ought to have been September 15th, instead of which it was only September the 10th. So that in reality you had only stayed a night or two in the inn, queried the doctor. Vezin hesitated before replying. He shuffled upon the mat. I must have gained time somewhere, he said at length, somewhere or somehow. I certainly had a week to my credit. I can't explain it. I can only give you the fact. And this happened to you last year? Since when, you've never been back to the place? Yes, autumn, yes, murmured Vezin, and I've never dared to go back. I think I never want to. And tell me, asked Dr. Silence at length, when he saw that the little man had evidently come to the end of his words and had nothing more to say. Had you ever read up on the subject of the old witchcraft practices during the Middle Ages, or been at all interested in that subject? Never declared Vezin emphatically. I'd never given a thought to such matters, so far as I know. Or to the question of reincarnation, perhaps? Never. Before my adventure, never. But I have since, he replied significantly. There was, however, something still on the man's mind that he wished to relieve himself of by confession, yet could only with difficulty bring himself to mention and it was only after the sympathetic tactfulness of the doctor had provided numerous openings that he at length availed himself of one of them, and stammered that he would like to show him the marks he had on his neck, where, he said, the girl had touched him with her anointed hands. He took off his collar, after infinite fumbling hesitation, and lowered his shirt a little for the doctor to see, and there, on the surface of the skin, lay a faint reddish line across the shoulder, and extending a little way down the back towards the spine. It certainly indicated exactly the position on an arm might have taken in the act of embracing, and on the other side of the neck, slightly higher up, was a similar mark, though not quite so clearly defined. "'That was where she held me, that night on the ramparts,' he whispered, a strange light coming and going in his eyes." It was some weeks later when I again found occasion to consult John Silence concerning another extraordinary case that had come under my notice, and we fell to discussing Vezin's story. Since hearing it, the doctor had made investigations on his own account, and one of his secretaries had discovered that Vezin's ancestors had actually lived for generations in the very town where the adventure came to him. Two of them, both women, had been tried and convicted as witches, and had been burned alive at the stake. Moreover, it had not been difficult to prove that the very inn where Vezin stayed was built about 1700, upon the spot where the funeral pyres stood and the executions took place. The town was a sort of headquarters for all of the sorcerers and witches of the entire region, and after conviction they were burnt there, literally, by scores. 
It seems strange, continued the doctor, that Vezin should have remained ignorant of all this. But on the other hand, it was not the kind of history that successive generations would have been anxious to keep alive, or to repeat to their children. Therefore I'm inclined to think he still knows nothing about it. The whole adventure seems to have been very vivid revival of the memories of an earlier life, caused by coming directly into contact with the living forces still intense enough to hang about the place, and by a most singular chance too, with the very souls who had taken part with him in the events of that particular life. For the mother and daughter, who impressed him so serenely, must have been leading actors with himself in the scenes and practices of witchcraft, which at that period dominated the imaginations of the whole country. One has only to read the histories of the times to know that these witches claimed the power of transforming themselves into various animals, both for the purposes of disguise and also to convey themselves swiftly to the scenes of their imaginary orgies. Lycanthropy, or the power to change themselves into wolves, was everywhere believed in, and the ability to transform themselves into cats by rubbing their bodies with a special salve or ointment, provided by Satan himself, of course, found equal credence. The witchcraft trials abound in evidences of such universal beliefs. Dr. Silence quoted chapter and verse from many writers on the subject, and showed how every detail of Vezin's adventure had a basis in the practices of those dark days. But the entire affair took place subjectively in one man's own consciousness, I have no doubt, he went on, in reply to my questions. For my secretary, who has been to the town to investigate, discovered his signature in the visitor's book, and proved by it that he had arrived on September the 8th, and left suddenly without paying his bill. Two days later, they still were in possession of his dirty brown bag and some tourist clothes. I paid a few francs in settlement of his debt, and have sent his luggage on to him. The daughter was absent from home, but the proprietress, a large woman very much as he described her, told my secretary that he had seemed a very strange, absent-minded kind of a gentleman, and after his disappearance she had feared for a long time that he had met with a violent end in the neighbouring forest where he used to roam about alone. I should like to have obtained a personal interview with the daughter, so as to ascertain how much was subjective and how much actually took place with her as Vezin told it. For her dread of fire and the sight of the burning must, of course, have been the intuitive memory of her former painful death at the stake and have thus explained why he fancied more than once that he saw her through smoke and flame. And that mark on his skin, for instance, I inquired. Merely the marks produced by hysterical brooding, he replied, like the stigmata of the religiouses, and the bruises which appear on the bodies of the hypnotised subjects who've been told to expect them. This is very common, and easily explained. Only it seems curious that these marks should have remained so long in Vezin's case, Usually they disappear quickly. Obviously he's still thinking about it, brooding, living it all over and over again, I ventured. Probably, and this makes me fear that the end of his trouble is not yet. We shall hear of him again. It is a case, alas, I can do little to alleviate. Dr. Silence spoke gravely and with sadness in his voice. What do you make of the Frenchman in the train? I asked the man who warned him against the place. Surely that was a very singular incident. A very singular incident indeed, he made answer slowly, and one I can only explain on the basis of a highly improbable coincidence. 
which is, namely, that the man was one who had himself stayed in the town and undergone there a similar experience. I should like to find this man and to ask him. But the crystal is useless here, for I have no slightest clue to go upon, and I can only conclude that some singular psychic affinity, some force still active in his being out of the same past life, drew him thus to the personality of Vezin, and enabled him to fear what might happen to him, and thus to warn him, as he did. Yes, he presently continued, half talking to himself, I suspect in this case that Vezin was swept into the vortex of forces arising out of the intense activities of a past life, and that he lived over again a, a scene in which he had often played a leading part centuries before. For strong actions set up forces that are so slow to exhaust themselves, they may be said, in a sense, never to die. In this case, they were not vital enough to render an illusion complete, so that the little man found himself caught in a very distressing confusion of the present and the past. Yet he was sufficiently sensitive to recognise that it was true, and to fight against it, the degradation of it returning, even in memory, to a former and lower state of development. Ah, yes, he continued, crossing the floor to gaze at the darkening sky, and seemingly quite oblivious of my presence. Subliminal uprushes of memory, ones like this, can be exceedingly painful, and sometimes exceedingly dangerous. I only trust that this gentle soul may soon escape from this obsession of a passionate and tempestuous past. But I doubt it. I doubt it. His voice was hushed with sadness as he spoke, and when he turned back into the room, again there was an expression of profound yearning upon his face, the yearning of a soul whose desire to help is sometimes greater than his power. And that's all for today, except to remind you of my Patreon account where you can support my production of audiobooks. As a patron, you get access not just to the stories published here in the podcast, but also all the other books that I record. At the moment, I'm recording a classic science fiction novel called Plague Ship. Also, another science fiction novel by Andre Norton called Starborn. And, of course, the final volume of Charles Oman's History of the Peninsula War. If you're interested, please go to patreon.com and search there for Felbrig. That's F-E-L-B-R-I-G-G. This file is released on an attribution, non-commercial, no-derivatives license. So, until next time...